Welcome back to the Garden State Law Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Lau, joined today by Sabre litigator Michael Short. Mike, thanks for joining us today. No problem, Tim. Nice to be here. So today we're going to talk about what it's like to be sued as a business. Um, But before we do that, uh, Mike, let me just let you talk a little bit about yourself and your practice. Yeah, no, I've I've been at Sabre for uh, over six years now. I'm primarily a commercial litigator. I do everything from commercial contract disputes to uh, appointment discrimination work. I do a lot of real estate litigation, representing brokers, agents um, in New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. Uh, also, I have a kind of a somewhat of a niche practice uh, representing a company that does a lot of business district management um, throughout New Jersey, which is a little bit of everything, planning special events, uh, building those parklets you sometimes see mm-hmm. like in busy thoroughfares, those little temporary parks, like helping them get permits for that. and. Uh, just kind of a wide variety of things, some kind of just general outside general counsel work for them. So kind of a pretty diverse practice, but primarily litigation. So I've never been sued. Hopefully I'll, I'll not be sued ever. Correct. Um, and I think while I've been working in the legal industry as a non-attorney for nearly 20 years, mm-hmm. um, there are still aspects of litigation that mystify me. Sure. So I, I think what would be helpful for listeners and someone like me is walking the process through from beginning to end. Sure. Where where does it start and where does it end? So my thought was, I'm going to give you a couple of scenarios sure. of a small or mid-sized business, and they're being sued. And as we walk through, we can keep both of those businesses in mind, and we can use those as examples for like the exercise, I suppose. Yeah. So here are the scenarios for you, Mike. Let's go. Scenario number one. Yeah. Um, I'm a florist, and I am in Morristown, New Jersey. Um, I've been working with a vendor for 10 years who delivers flowers to me. Um, over the last year or so, um, this vendor was under new management. Now, in the beginning of this relationship, everything went well. Mm-hmm. But over the last few months, things started to deteriorate. The flowers they were delivering were dead or shoddy. The... Um, you know, the, the deliveries were wrong, they were late, um, they weren't the correct orders. Um, but at the end of the day, we accepted the flowers because we had orders to fill and we didn't want to not fill the orders. Sure. So the last delivery was a mess and we said, like, that's it, I'm not paying. But we accepted the flowers. We'll pay when they fix it. The vendor says, no, 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 you accepted, too bad, we got a problem here. Sure. And he said, well, we're not paying until you fix and you, if you don't like it, sue us. Sure. So they do. <laughs> so we have a contract dispute on hand. So small business contract dispute. Yep. Scenario two, I'll keep this easy. It's the same business. We're, uh, we're a florist. We've got 10, 12 employees. One employee is 68 years old. Uh, the employee is disgruntled. They're insubordinate. They're giving us a hard time. And ultimately, we let that person go because they weren't doing their job. A month later... We're getting sued for age discrimination. So two businesses, one business, two scenarios, both likely to happen to a small business, um, but kind of of a different nature. Sure. So let's walk through. We're getting sued twice, unfortunately, for this poor florist. Right. What's the first step? Where do we start? So how do I even know that I'm being sued? I'm being sued. I'm assuming that someone's Maybe bringing these. I'm getting notice. Yeah. How do I get notice? Where? What's the first step? Sure. Yeah. So, it, it, the good question. Just jumping back a bit, where you said that you've never been sued. That's awesome. Keep that going. Keep that streak going as long as you can. I'm, I'm going to try. Uh, lots of people have avoided it. Lots of businesses have, have avoided being pulled into litigation. But it is completely common to get pulled into litigation. I mean, every year. I don't know the exact number, but in the state of New Jersey, in state courts, like every year over 100,000 cases are filed throughout the, the, all the, the different counties. Now, that includes everything from motor vehicle to landlord tenant, but all those generic contract disputes, employment discrimination practices, disputes, uh, things like you just described, very, very, very common. And that's just lawsuits being filed. Just it's being not, filed yeah. on an annual basis. Right. And now we could talk separately. We could have a five hour podcast about judicial shortages and all the issues politically and uh, operationally for the court system that's going on there uh, that maybe the listeners are familiar with in terms of certain counties right now being uh, having no civil trials and no family law trials because of the shortages of judges. But that's a whole separate topic. Um, 
So we'll just, we'll go first with the, the flower vendor uh, one. The way that you're probably going to find out that you got sued is that you're going to be in your store putting together a nice bouquet and all of a sudden a stranger walks in. They're going to ask, are you the owner of the shop? And you're going to say yes. Then they're going to hand you a piece of paper. They're going to say you've just been served. That's a process server. So what happens is when, when a lawsuit's filed in New Jersey state court, the plaintiff goes, they file it. Now everything's electronic. They file a complaint that lays out what their claims are. And then they generate what's called a summons. And a summons is pictured back in the, you know, the 1800s where you'd get a notice saying, hear ye, hear ye, you need to come to the courthouse at this date, at this time, because you've been sued. It's a modern version of that. It's going to tell you that you've been sued. It's going to tell you what county you're in. Uh, there's a form that they give you that says essentially you have 35 days to respond to the lawsuit and they'll give you a list of bar associations where if you don't have an attorney, you can contact with them for an attorney. But that's it. That's it started. You've gotten a summons. You've now been sued. Is it ever? So I've been on jury duty before. Sure. That's just a mailer, something that they can easily miss. And yeah. some people may accidentally miss it, you know, wink, wink. Correct. This is not that case. You well, don't want to like pretend this isn't happening or like, I didn't see it. It was in the mail. I don't know what's going on. Like, this is not something you're going to miss or might you miss it? You, you, so good question. So it depends. And now that's every lawyer answer. Everything depends. Uh, in the state of New Jersey, there are different levels of courts. So if you're getting sued for less than $5,000, you're in what's known as small claims court. Anything from 5,000 to 20,000 is called special civil part. Those are kind of faster, more streamlined um, courts for lower, smaller level disputes where you can get sued by a postcard. You will receive either a postcard in the mail, a copy of the complaint in the mail. Um, you can receive that. It can be initiated that way, similar to where if you receive something from jury duty or the DMV or whatever, or motor vehicles in New Jersey, uh, you can be served that way in those lower level lawsuits. A law division case, which is essentially an unlimited amount of money. So any other generic lawsuit that with no cap on how much money is being sought, that will be served through a process server 99 times out of 100. So if it's a, so if we're thinking about the, the vendor dispute, yeah, it's $7,000 delivery that can come in the mail. That's so, I mean, the takeaway is, I mean, as simple as it sounds, pay attention to what's coming in and out the door because, I mean, obviously if you're a business, you should be doing that anyways, but there's, you know, if you have a dispute yes. with a vendor and it's serious of nature, you need to be kind of focused on what's going on. Yeah. It's it's a good practice in general. And this, uh, for anybody that has, is operating a business, whoever's opening the mail, it has to be something you can kind of trust, whether it's a bill an invoice that you missed, a check payment coming in from a client, all those things obviously you're looking for, but also anything related to legal action, whether it's a demand letter from an attorney, or in this case, possibly a copy of the complaint from a, from a courthouse, you want to have something that you could trust looking at that stuff. Uh, similarly, if whoever's at your front desk of your business, whether it's a florist shop or a small business of some sort, um, if a process server comes in and they get served with a copy of a lawsuit, they have to know that this wasn't, you know, just a uh, a flyer that they got, you know, a penny saver ad telling them to go buy something from a store. It's an actual important moment in that company's history because they've been sued. And now there's a legal process that has now been started by that that they need to start to respond to. Um, yes, but I mean, I guess in this case, you know, I, we could do it one or two ways. I guess the more traditional one would be if we say that the, the it was the day before Mother's Day. Uh, so our hypothetical, if, you, if you'll go with it, is that the vendor sir, it was owed $50,000 for their for their flowers, and that's what you didn't pay them. So that's probably going to get you into the law division um, and kind of like a more standard lawsuit versus special civil or small claims. Mm -hmm. um, but I feel like if you're, you said five to 20 yeah. is, is one range, right? So, but that's probably pretty common for a small business, right? That's a, yeah. you know, small is small. And maybe if you're a vendor and it's $3,000 and you just, at the end of the day, you go like, it's not even worth right. me tackling this. Yeah. But if you're in eight, nine, ten thousand dollars $10,000, I would imagine that's fairly common for a florist in Mars. Correct. Yeah. And, and it's interesting too. There's different, when you're talking about the economics of it, um, when a business gets sued, if it's a, a business can sue and can also represent itself if it has been sued as a defendant without a lawyer, if you're in small claims court. So that's anything below $5,000, 
you you're a sole, you're a, a member of an LLC, you have your florist shop, you have whatever, you get students uh, small claims, you can go to court yourself, you can represent yourself. Anything above that, any corporate entity, partnership, any other like legal entity like that has to be represented by an attorney uh, in the state of New Jersey. Once you have an attorney on board, mandatory, then your expenses start to like pile in there a little bit where you have to take that into account that you have to budget for an attorney, see how much is at stake. That could incentivize people to try and like work out settlements on a more rapid fashion because you also have in addition to paying out whatever you may owe to somebody, but you also have to have legal fees on top of that if you're in special civil law division, right? So you brought up the point of, I'm a business, I can't represent myself, I need an attorney. So who else needs to know? So you're, I've got this summons, whether yeah. it's in the mail or whether someone delivered it to me. Right. I'm looking over this, I'm understanding some of it, a lot of it's probably legalese, but I'm getting the gist of what's going on here. Correct. Other than an attorney, who else do I need to contact? Who else needs to know um, one side for receipts? Sure. So if you look at if, if you look at uh, the vendor um, or the forest hypothetical we're working with, you receive it. You're the owner of the store. You get a copy of this, and you're like, "All right, I've been sued by Flower Supply Company X Y Z." You have to do a couple of things right now. One is stay calm. People get sued all the time. It's not fun. It's not. It's not going to be the highlight of your day or your week. Easier said than done. You're not going to Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But it, it, you, you have to be like, all right, this is a, a, an operational cost. Unfortunately, a lot of times in our society, which is pretty litigious, is that I'm going to have to deal with this legal situation. So number one, stay calm. Easier said than done. True. Number two is you have to start to read through the complaint and really kind of understand what they're getting at. Um, in, in that hypothetical, if we're talking about uh, somebody who delivered bad flowers. Now they're saying that you owe the money for it. And you say you don't go back and say, did somebody take pictures of the delivery? Did somebody take notes of what was good? What was bad? Did we have the, uh, the invoice that they, that they submitted to us that lists the exact number of flowers we're supposed to get. Do we have on our other side, an inventory sheet that maybe we keep track of what's coming in the door and can we mark off, you know, this, this, and that was, was, was bad. Like these flowers are rotten. The stems were bad, whatever it may be. You have to start to figure out what kind of documents are relevant to your, to your situation. The reason for that is um, not only to be able for yourself to be able to review what happened and really get your arms around it, but there's this entire concept of like, you have to retain documents that are relevant to the lawsuit when you first get sued. Um, companies that get sued on a regular basis, this is like standard practice, they get sued, they'll generate what's called like a litigation hold memo or a preservation memo where they will send that to anybody who might have relevant documents or data related to the lawsuit. So in this case, you might go to your sales department if it's a big floral operation, say, guys, I need you guys to keep track of like all the invoices that we have related to this flower shipment that we received. Also, the invoices that you might have from customers that were supposed to be buying those flowers, retain those. If, um, if you have uh, cell phone records or emails back and forth with the vendor, you got to make sure that you retain those, that you don't purge them. Maybe sometimes you might have like a, a standard purging process where every 60 days you purge old deleted emails, whatever it may be. You want to make sure that you retain all those things. And that's relevant, not just for the vendor example, but the, I mean, it's, it's different in terms of what you're going about doing, Yeah. but you have your 68 year old insubordinate employee. Yep. And the document process, while it's not, I'm documenting invoices or making pictures, but he refuses to follow, you know, direction or order, and you're making note of that each time. So, I mean, I guess really what you're trying to say or what you are saying is that best practices from a business owner, any sort of uh, contentious dispute needs to be documented because at some point you're going to be asked to present these. Correct. Yeah. So in, in pivoting to that example... Traditionally, you're going to look to human resources. You're going to look to timesheets. So whoever the person is that processes your payroll, whoever looks at timesheets and maybe you have a punch-in, punch-out system, uh, and if one of the issues is that this employee is chronically tardy or chronically leaves early, you want to be able to capture all that in the timesheets that shows when they're coming and going. Any performance, uh, performance improvement plans that they might have been put on, anytime they've been written up for something, maybe... One of the issues is that they operate one of your delivery trucks and they've been in 15 fender benders and you just don't want to deal with that anymore. 
all that stuff you need to kind of like holistically go through your organization and say who might have relevant information who might have relevant documents send out this notice which is there's a standard notice any attorney could probably help you prepare it um but just basically puts everybody on notice like retain all the documents if you have a normal document purging system retain all the documents set that policy aside for the time being until you receive a second notice saying that this matter has been resolved and you can go on your normal course but so going back to the employment discrimination suit you're a small business you're you're, you're just a guy who's running a small business he's not it where there's no hr there is no formal evaluation plans we have all part-time employees or a couple of full-time employees if i'm documenting something that is necessary um if a lawsuit should arise how formal do i need to be about it i mean i don't let, let's say these employees don't even have email addresses so how am i going to show that this guy is i'm telling him to do one thing and he's refusing because he thinks it's not the right thing to do because 30 years ago he had a flower shop and that's not how you do it that's you know right. it doesn't matter i mean it can be some as simple as I'm writing something and I'm making a and, and handing it to them and I'm making a photocopy and I'm saving it and on the computer or how do you document something that's so informal, generally speaking? Yeah, I mean, there, there's there's best practices and then there's reality, obviously. So yeah. best practices would be that anytime you have any type of disciplinary issue with an employee that you document it in some manner and that you have separate individualized files for all of your employees. Um, in reality, a lot of people maybe stray away from that, but I'll tell you uh, that that old saying, once bitten, twice shy, usually after someone's been through an employment practices litigation, they will step up the level of documentation that they keep. They'll step up the fact that they keep individual files for people, uh, keep track of people's time more carefully, um, both for, you know, proactively to avoid any type of litigation, but also just it's best practices, best way to do it. Um, reality, a lot of people don't do that. And a lot of times it takes an incident such as being sued for them to kind of step up their game and say, okay, I need to professionalize this business as opposed to kind of doing it seat of the pants, maybe how I did it or how my, my, the, the prior owner did it that can work for a while. But in today's day and age where everything is very litigious, um, employees have access to all the statutes that they might be entitled to sue under, you know, at the, at the, the tap of a computer button. Um, it's best practices to have that kind of stuff. Um, if you don't have it, it's not the end of the world. It's just now you're going to have to get into more of a situation where you're providing your attorney with a lot of background information. So again, so kind of going back to like when you first get sued, if you have, uh, and we'll go with the employment one, if, if a small business does not have like uh, employment practices insurance, where there are insurance companies that will insure you for claims related to like discrimination or age discrimination, gender, race, ethnicity, whatever it may be. Um, if you don't have that, you now have to kind of real say like, all right, well, I need, I need to go look for an attorney. Uh, you can find that attorney through Google searches, word of mouth, reach out to a colleague of yours or a friend that you know has had a litigation experience in the bat in the past. You get set up with an attorney. You can call Mike Short. You can call Mike Short. You can call Saber, obviously. Um, you have to do that quickly, quicker than you think. So in New Jersey, state court case, employing like, like the employment discrimination hypothetical, from the date you get the summons, you have 35 days to file a response with the court. Now that can be extended. You can reach an agreement where you're going to send, like extend that for up to 30 to 60 days. But generally you have 35 days to take action. And in those 35 days, you want to, you, you're going to have to locate an attorney, meet with that attorney, retain that attorney, sign like a formal retainer agreement, which you have to have in New Jersey with an attorney, provide them with all the documentation that's relevant, or set up a meeting, sit down with them and kind of go through the entire situation, explain your side of the story, allow that attorney to have time to look into what's going on. And then you may say, you know what, I, I messed up. I did, I did let this guy go because of some unlawful reason. I think we need to try and resolve this. I don't want to have it litigation hanging over my head. Uh, can you sit down with the other guy's attorney and see if we can work something out? Or you might say, this is unbelievably wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. I want to fight this until the, the cows come home. Both of them fine, both of them legitimate, both of them very common responses to it. 
but you have to act quickly because you need to get that attorney engaged pretty rapidly because that 35 day window that's inclusive of weekends, holidays, it's 35 days. So you have to get going quickly. If you don't, the plaintiff can move for what's called the default, which is basically they go to the court and they say, I sued this person. I served them the right way. They never responded. I want to get a judgment against them as if, you know, they were found guilty. I suspect already that that is more common than maybe I think. The default, it, it, it is to a point, um, and there's the process to it, like you have to enter a default and then separately you'd have to come back and apply for a default judgment where that turns into an actual monetary judgment where the person would have to prove how much money they actually lost. They have to support that with affidavits. Let's say it's an employment practices case or in the contract dispute one we were talking about earlier, they'd have to provide copies of the invoices to show that they're actually owed that money. So there's a little bit of window in there um, of time between the default and the default judgment. Um, and yeah, default happens pretty regularly. Like it's not uncommon to have to file a consent order vacating a default to let someone enter an order. Letting it go all the way to judgment, less common, but still does happen, obviously. And there's been situations where we've been retained well after the fact where a judgment's already in place. And now we have to work to try and get that default vacated, which courts are usually not prone to do because you had your fair opportunity to respond to it. You didn't. And then you end up spending a ton of money for nothing on top of yep. whatever the court is made. Exactly. Exactly. So you could really, I've, I've had, I had a client once uh, in, uh, in Bergen County who just didn't respond to a lawsuit, just flat out didn't respond to it, knew about it, um, kind of wishing it away. Wishing it away and then even <laughs> taunting the person who sued them saying, I'm not even response this, this is worthless, blah, blah, blah. He then five years later goes to apply for a loan and they're like, you have this judgment against you. And then he tries to get the judgment vacated because he didn't get the loan partly because of that. And we had this very uphill battle. And eventually the court was like, I hear you, but you, you got all, you got sued. You knew about it. The judgment stands. So they ended up having to pay the judgment and you know, he moved on, but lesson learned it's, it's going to happen. You can't ignore it. Somebody already took the time to retain a lawyer. Somebody already took the time to, pay that lawyer to file the lawsuit and the process is started. You can't ignore it. It's not like, uh, you know, when you're a little kid and you have a homework assignment and you just hope that you get a snow day the next day and just cross your fingers. It's not, it's not going to go away. Um, yeah. So, so you, and then at that point when you're, you can either file what's called an answer, just most of the time you file an answer where basically you respond to the allegations and the complaint. So in the, say the employment, uh, or the age discrimination one, you might go through, you might admit, yes, he was my employee. Yes, he was terminated as of April 1st, 2023. Um, the allegation that he was let go because of his age, you, you write out, I deny that. And then you give the basis for why you're denying it. And then you- um, And to be clear, when you say you, the attorney is writing this. Correct. You're, you're supplying the information, but at that point, you're relatively hands-off. You're not actually going through the mechanics of responding to the lawsuit. You Well, not not necessarily. So you oftentimes with my clients, um, I will go through the complaint with them and really kind of get into the nitty-gritty, like, is that true or is that not true? Like, if it says that Bob Smith was supervised by Tim Howard, I, I mean, I wouldn't know that necessarily. So I have to go through the person and find out, are we going to admit that? Are we going to deny that? And sometimes it'd be like, I admit he was supervised by Tim Howard, but he was also supervised by, you know, Tony, Tony Smith as well. And you kind of give more, uh, you know, flesh out the facts a little bit more in your, in your answer to the complaint. Um, separately, you might move to dismiss the complaint, which is that maybe it's a procedurally defective. Uh, I mean, going back when we talked about that forest, with the vendor, you said that it all happened within the last year. So that, in that case, like a statute of limitations argument is not going to apply. But if a vendor comes out of the woodwork and says, 10 years ago, I gave you a, an invoice for $50,000 worth of flowers, you never paid it. I was just cleaning out my desk and I found that invoice and I said, oh my God, Tim never paid me my 50 grand. I'm going to file a lawsuit. You can't. There's a six-year statute of limitations in New Jersey on contract actions. So in that case, if you get sued, your initial move will be most likely to file a uh, motion to dismiss under Rule 462, which is a, a failure to state a claim. Essentially, you'd say, even if what he's saying is true, even if he's absolutely right, I never paid that invoice, the statute says it's a six-year statute of limitations, where 10 years later, I'm done. And then the courts will review it. They'll see if there's any other, you know, equitable exceptions to it. But, you know, again, if that's the, the you know, the basic fact is that, 
your case will get dismissed and you can go about your day. So it's interesting um, is that it really reinforces that anyone can sue for anything, even if it's a, like the court doesn't, when, when, when you're filing a complaint, the court doesn't do a quick look to say like, wait a minute, you're outside statute of limitations or this is, this is procedurally incorrect. That never happens. You have to go through, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I guess I'm not sure, but anyone can file whatever they want. Yeah. And so you need to deal with it. There's not going to be, no one's going to come swoop in and say like, nope, nope, nope. That was 10 years ago. And you may know that as a business owner, right. if you're the owner of the florist, like this was 10 years ago, that's beyond the statute of limitations. I can ignore it. It doesn't matter. You, you still have to go through the mechanics of the process, regardless of how ridiculous it may seem. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a frustrating thing for a lot of business owners. I've had, um, you know, clients where we're working on a contract together where there's, say, a waiver of any claims on, you know, such and such topic. And they'll ask me, like, all right, so I'm guaranteed I'll never get sued for that. And my answer every time is, nope, I am not guaranteeing that. I'm, at, like, affirmatively saying I'm not guaranteeing that. Because, like you said, anybody could get sued for anything. Do you have a very, 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 very strong defense to that claim? Absolutely. It's written in the contract. Both sides reviewed it. Both sides maybe took part in drafting it. And we can file a pretty straightforward motion and get it dismissed, but it doesn't stop the person from actually filing the lawsuit. I, I've never worked in the clerk's office in the court, but my understanding is that they're basically looking to say, like, does this have a caption on it? Does, is it signed at the bottom? Can we read this and kind of get an idea of what the dispute's about? Yes. Yeah. Off to the races. I have cases, even one right now in Monmouth County. The complaint is very, very difficult to understand. Very difficult. And I've talked with the plaintiff who's representing himself, and it's very difficult to understand what exactly he's saying my client did wrong. But guess what? We're in court. We're, we're it's all happening. We we filed motion a motion to dismiss. We're engaging in you know preliminary discussions. We have court conferences. So even if the uh, complaint is not the model of clarity, it will get filed. Even if the complaint is, you know, facially deficient, it will get filed and you're going to have to respond to it. And that's frustrating. It's uh, arguably a flaw of the judicial system. But at the other side, come from a constitutional perspective, everyone has access to the courts. And if we start to say that, oh, well, we have, it has to be this level of clarity or that it has to be written this perfectly every time, you're cutting off a lot of people who maybe can't afford an attorney and they're doing it on their own pro se, or they have an attorney who's representing him and he's doing the best that, or she's doing the best that they can, but they have a weak case, but they're still going to put that argument forward. They're going to put the complaint forward and then the parties have to litigate it. So it's always cliche, a little frustrating to say like, that's how the system works, but that's how the system works. So you're, you're filing an answer. Yep. Um, you're not moving to dismiss. And, um, that's happened. What's next? Am I waiting? You know, this is where we traditionally hear that everything moves slowly. Are we talking? And I guess it depends on the court. It depends on where you are. Um, but we're now waiting for, I would, I would assume we're talking about a court date or what happens next? Yeah. So things have been moving very slow, uh, in New Jersey. In New Jersey, well, and even nationally, like I, I practice in New York and Pennsylvania, as well as New Jersey, and it's been pretty slow across the board, uh, exacerbated dramatically by COVID. Now, everyone blames everything on COVID, which obviously is true to a point, sometimes a little hyperbolic, but in this case, it's absolutely true. For a year period, pretty much, virtually all in-person court appearances stopped. And after a while, the court was able to, you know, very nimbly try and start to figure out, like, how do we do this virtually? How do we do jury selection virtually? Um, everyone had a crash course on getting onto Zoom or onto Microsoft Teams, having their conferences and getting things moving. But everything was kind of gummed up. And from a process and a system that was already hugely a high volume number of cases, lots of litigants, things were already protracted for a large part to have that type of rupture in the system has had this ripple effect. It's still going on today. And particularly, um, thousands and thousands of landlord tenant cases filed by tenants who couldn't pay their rent, 
commercial businesses that couldn't no longer pay their rent, lawsuits filed under that. And there's a massive backlog from that where I know certain counties now, judges that were handling law division cases, just general broad stroke cases are now handling landlord tenant cases just because of the overflow, because they have to kind of start to work through this process. You might have landlords who haven't been paid in two years and they're still waiting for a uh, their case to go to trial to get some sort of resolution. So in theory, theory, yeah. Once it's filed, you're waiting for a court date. Yeah, well, you're not. You're waiting for a court date, but really, what you're waiting for is discovery to get started. So now, discovery is the broad stroke term for when the parties start to go through the actual facts of the lawsuit and find out what actually happened. So, going back to your age discrimination case, um, as the defendant, you're going to send out. Well, and, and the plaintiff will do this as well, but we'll just talk of the uh, the role of the defendant. You're going to send out um, primarily two documents right away. Interrogatories, which is a list of written questions where you're going to say, like, tell me the specific basis of your claim that you were let go for age discrimination. Tell me your specific damages that you allege that you've incurred. Uh, if the person said that they, su they suffered emotional distress, uh, the interrogatories might include requests for identify any psychiatrist, social workers, therapists that you've seen. Um, and then provide us with HIPAA forms so we can request copies of those records so we can review that and really see whether you've attributed emotional distress or emotional damages to you being let go um, from this employment. Um, so the interrogators are that. They're written questions, but they're supposed to provide a written response. Then separately, you'd send out a, a, a document request or a notice to produce. That's where you're asking them to provide copies of all relevant documents. So, and documents is, again, broadly defined to include not only like this is a paper, uh, emails, but also audio recordings. Like at cases where an employee has recorded a supervisor, that's the type of material that has to be turned over to the other side. Because essentially everyone is supposed to get the same universe of documents, papers, and information. And now we can build our cases off of this common pile of information that we're all collecting. So you're going to be working with your attorney to send out document demands and interrogatories. And then also you're going to be getting document demands and interrogatories from the plaintiff. And you're going to have to work with your attorney to, uh, to provide those responses. Generally document demands, you have 30 days to respond to those. Uh, and generally you have 60 days to respond to interrogatories. Now that those times can kind of be a little bit extended, or you can reach an agreement to say, you know, it's May 25th. We're all going to be issuing uh, document demands today. We're not going to respond until August 1st. There's, there's, you can reach those types of agreements with, with other sides. And sometimes with the assistance of the court through, they call it a case management conference where the judge brings everyone in, kind of gets an idea of what the case is about. And you talk about the discovery schedule. Generally when paper discovery, the interrogatories, document demands, and there's also another one called requests for admissions where you, again, give somebody written questions asking that to say, well, do you admit that, you know, going to the age discrimination one, do you admit that you were involved in five motor vehicle accidents using uh, the Tin Lao Florist truck. And they'll say yes or no, and they'll respond to it. You, generally, you send out requests for admission, things that you know or you believe the other person's going to have to admit. Once that process is largely completed, paper discovery, you get to depositions. Now, a lot of people have heard of what a deposition is. They may have seen it recently. Um, like the former president's deposition uh, video was just recently released a couple of weeks ago. Um, but a deposition is a way for one side to take sworn testimony from the other side's witness. So again, going to the age discrimination case, we would send a notice of deposition to their attorney and we would say, we want to depose Mr. Smith on, you know, July 1st at your office starting at 10 o'clock. Um, you're not going to the courthouse, but you're showing up typically at someone's, uh, conference room and there's a court reporter there who is entitled to swear you in and swear you in as if you were on the bench about to testify at a trial. And the, the question process begins where I would be asking them questions from soup to nuts, but, you know, begin, usually beginning with like their background, professional background, and then all the way through all the allegations in the case, their claim damages, any other lawsuits they might've been involved in, anything like that. The whole time the court reporter who are wizards, <laughs> you watch them, they're, they're amazing. The stenographers are able to take down everyone's uh, speech and all the objections, even when attorneys kind of get into it, they come up with this 
unbelievably accurate transcript of what happened. That's a separate issue. Um, the U.S. have to be very nice to them as they're turning because they are like they're they're the 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 cog that keeps the wheel turning. Um, you'll go through that process. So there'll be a deposition process where people will provide their their oral testimony as to what happened, and then you end up with a transcript. Um, and again, on your side, you're defending an employment discrimination case. The people that might get deposed would probably include, you know, this direct supervisor, maybe the second level supervisor, coworkers who may have had interactions or might have witnessed something. It, there's, there's no like set list of characters of who's going to get deposed. Um, but that's the process is usually the, the attorneys go through and they say, here's the people that have relevant knowledge. Do we want to depose all of them? Are we going to post these few, whatever it might be? They go through this process of picking out depositions. On the plaintiff side, it's generally the an employment discrimination case. Generally, the uh, the, the former employee or current employee, depending if they haven't been terminated, uh, potentially a spouse if there's some sort of uh, spousal claim included. Um, if they produce an expert report from, say, a therapist or from an economist who's saying that they suffered economic damages, those people might be deposed as well. Um, there is a possibility as well, including like employees of the employer or, or current reformer who might be produced. There might be outside people. So maybe there was a, uh, yeah, say there's an, a situation where a, an employee sues the supervisor and says, you harassed me at the office party at a hotel on Route 10. And they identify that there was a bartender at the hotel that saw what happened. Now, either the plaintiff or the defendant, could be either one, might send a subpoena to the hotel and try and serve that bartender and say, we think you have relevant knowledge about what happened. You're not a party to the case, but we're still serving you with this subpoena, and we want you to come and for, for a testimony to sit down and we're going to ask you questions about it. Now that now subpoenas, people have heard about subpoenas as well. People hear about like whether in criminal justice, watching law and order, whatever it might be. There's basically two types of subpoenas. One is a subpoena for testimony, um, where you're asking someone to come in, sit down, and actually provide testimony, usually in a deposition during the discovery process. Let me jump in real quick. So it's a subpoena. Are you required, or is it a we'd like you to come in, no. but you don't have to? No. Or this is this is jury duty. This is a lawsuit. You're getting subpoenaed. You need to yeah. you need to attend. It, it's mandatory. Yeah, and there's I've had cases uh, in New Jersey where we've subpoenaed somebody. They just didn't show up. We reach out again, and you try. I mean, you'll give a date and a time. You have to include a date and a time in the subpoena. But generally, you'll you'll work with people to say like, listen, if you're at work that day, we can get you on a Wednesday. We'll we'll, we'll make it work. But sometimes if they don't comply, you then have to file like a motion to enforce litigants' rights, where you you get like a sheriff's officer to serve them, and then. Um, I've never personally had it, but I'm sure there's situations where courts will issue like a warrant to have that pe person appear in the courthouse and explain why they're not cooperating with the subpoena. That's the, it's very funny. A lot of people don't realize this until you're involved in a lawsuit. Um, we're free. We can come and go. We're all, you know, you can jump, jump in your car right now and drive, do whatever you want, but we're all subject to this judicial process. As a, as a citizen of the state of New Jersey or a citizen of the United States, if you're in, our, in federal court, um, we've all agreed as a society that we're all subject to these laws. So if you are subpoenaed, you have to respond. Um, and there's consequences if you don't. Like you could choose not to, but then there might be consequences to that which might be unpleasant. So um, in addition to going back to what we're saying that the you know whoever's at the front desk opening the mail that they need to be aware of the fact that if they get served with a, a lawsuit that they need to respond to it. Same thing with a subpoena. If you're, a, say you're in a, you have an accounting practice um, and you receive a subpoena from a company because two companies got to a dispute or two former business partners got to a dispute and one of them wants to get a copy of the, the company's tax records or say you're doing back office, uh, you know, back office accounting work for them. Once you get that subpoena, same thing. You need to notify your attorney you need to let people know. You need to work on gathering the documents, turning them over to whoever sent the subpoena. You might have to, you might get involved in saying, um, this is all confidential information. I can't, I'm not going to turn this stuff over. Then your attorney has to decide, do we file a motion to quash the subpoena, which basically says you're going to court to say like, judge, time out. Like what they're asking for, they're not entitled for. 
or it's subject to a confidentiality order, unless there's a new confidentiality order in place here, I'm not getting in trouble by turning these things over. But you can't ignore it. You can't just say, ah, it's confidential. I'm not giving it to you. You have, to, you have to do something in order to get the court involved and make sure that they are either approving your course of action, forcing the parties to enter a new agreement, whether it's a new confidentiality order, only allowing, there's a designation called like attorney's eyes only, where only attorneys are looking at it, not anybody and their brother who wants to get their hands on is allowed to look at it. But you have to respond to it in some way. So that's kind of a theme here is take it seriously, respond, yes. don't ignore it, and things move pretty quickly. So not only don't ignore it, you need to act now. Yeah. And it's and it's funny too, because you have to act quickly to protect your rights and to make sure that you're in compliance with your obligations, um, you know, under statutes, court rules, everything of that nature. And then the tension is that things also take a long time. But as a layperson, you don't really know what is a bright line, you've got to do it by this date or you're in trouble. And what is a process that's going to take a long time? And your attorney might say like, listen, this is going to take months. So, you know, be patient. You're not sure which is which. So that's why it's better to get legal counsel involved early. Let them run the show. You're going to provide them with all the information they need. You're ultimately in charge of deciding, you know, whether to settle. Do you want to pursue this? Do you want to drop it? What are, you're in charge of that. But the mechanics of it and making sure you're complying with all your court rule obligations and your statutory obligations, regulatory obligations, get your legal counsel involved. Let them make those calls. Let them work through the process. Let them deal with the courts, with the adversary. You don't really want to do that on your own. Um, similar to just going back, if you are sued with a complaint, uh, sometimes you'll have the impetus to say, I'm going to call this guy who sued me. I'm going to haggle it out with him. I'm going to call the attorney that filed the lawsuit. I'm going to haggle out with him as well. Generally, I, I recommend against that. There might be things at play that you're not aware of. You might say something that comes across the wrong way. You might inadvertently say something that they're going to construe as an admission that um, could be used against you down the line. So it's better to kind of, again, I, I'm, I'm a lawyer, so it's going to sound a little cliche, be like, yeah, get a lawyer involved, but it's best bet, your best practice, again, is to get a lawyer involved as early as possible and let them become your mouthpiece. And it's good too, because even when you come to settlement negotiations, if you have an attorney mouthpiece, you're not getting into a tete-a-tete with your former vendor. You're not getting into this direct squabble with him. You're telling your attorney what you want. The attorney talks to that attorney, and then they can kind of help manage things. And it kind of helps keep the emotions down which traditionally helps things resolve faster than if everyone's just, you know, bumping heads as hard as they can. So discovery is over. Everything has been submitted to the court. Now, are there instances you're kind of waiting on a decision or no? Are, are we going to, are, am I going in person? Is there times when I'm not going in person? Do they review everything and uh, issue an opinion or not typically how does it, how does it wrap up? How does it end? How do we get to like, all right, we've gone through the process. Courts got what they need. Yeah. When are we going to figure out how this, how this completes? So I think that a lot of people would think that litigation attorneys are these, uh, swashbuckling attorneys who are constantly running into the courthouse and giving these, you know, virtuoso performances in front of a jury. That's just swooning over how well and eloquent that they've, they've made this argument. Now that does happen that in real life, there are trials that happen. The vast, vast, vast majority of cases are resolved on, uh, on a settlement basis. I, the exact number is, you know, in the high 90% is, is resolved on a settlement basis. So a lot of cases in New Jersey, uh, state court cases are subject to a mandatory mediation program where, um, you know, like, like going back to the vendor dispute. Uh, that case, you'll be referred to an attorney that traditionally will have some sort of commercial background experience in terms of commercial litigation. Um, it's usually an attorney is very experienced. They have to go through a process, become a certified uh, mediator. They will reach out to you and they'll reach out to the parties. They'll schedule a date. They're going to say, we're going to have a mediation on this date. Uh, you know, a week ahead of time, I want you guys both to give me a written summation of what you think happened and how you see this case potentially resolving. Both parties submit that usually ex parte, which means they, they submit it without the other side seeing it. Cause usually you're going to put in there. Um, yeah, they're demanding a hundred thousand. I'm willing to give them 50,000, but not a penny more. And so then the mediator can take that information and then 
set of mediation where you show up and uh, you'll be in the same conference room. The mediator is going to introduce himself or herself. And then you'll go into one room that your adversary goes into the other room. And then the, the mediator engages in, in, you know, shuttle diplomacy where he or she's going into one room and saying, hey, they want 80 grand. What do you think? I'm not going to give them a penny more than 40. And then they go next door and they go back and forth and you try to reach a resolution. And oftentimes that's a very productive process because you have everybody in the same room. Everyone has set aside a block of time where we're trying to resolve this. The mediators are often very, very, very talented attorneys where they've been through the ringer a million times. So they can say to party one, listen, you got a good case, but have you thought of these three weaknesses? That's why I think you might want to settle. The same thing to the other side, like, hey, you've got these problems as well. You might want to settle. And then they can kind of like manage it where you get that Venn diagram where you're like, you reach the point in the middle where traditionally settlement is everyone's a little unhappy. That's when you know it's a good settlement. Everyone's a little unhappy. Everyone's taking a haircut off of what they think that they were entitled to get or what they thought that what they want to give, but the case is resolved. Um, there's also uh, there's like a there's a, a mandatory arbitration program in certain in certain cases um, where again you would actually go to the courthouse in that in that situation and you meet with an arbitrator who's a court certified arbitrator again usually an experienced attorney or always an experienced attorney where you have just a very quick like hour long um, arbitration where you're explaining your side of the case they explain their side of the case you might provide him or her with the documentation to support your case. And then they're going to issue an award at the end. It's non-binding. So it's say you have a case where you're seeking $150,000 and they agree with you, but they give you a word of $10,000. If you don't accept that, you can file what's called the demand for trial de novo. Lots of Latin terms in the court, despite being here in New Jersey, lots of Latin terms. Um, and that just puts the case back on the, the court's docket to, the, to then go towards trial. Um, if you end up going to trial, there's a couple of things that could happen before that you can file a motion for summary judgment, which is this, it's basically a formal application to the court where you're saying, here's all the facts. And I can prove all the facts by saying, you know, Mr. Smith said this during his deposition transcript on this page, on this line to this line, there's this document that's indisputable. It says clearly that, you know, he was in these five accidents. We have, you know, whatever it might be, it's like you're going to lay everything out in a very like factual narrative with specific granular detail citations to, to, the, to the actual record. And you're submitting that to the court and saying, I'm entitled to judgment on a summary basis. We don't need to go to trial, review this, and based on the facts and based on the law, I'm entitled to judgment, I'm entitled to win. The other side might oppose that and say, no, 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 they've got it all wrong. They're misconstruing this, misconstruing that. Either they're not entitled to judgment, we have to go to trial, or they might cross move and say, I'm entitled to judgment. This guy's got it all wrong. Look at my facts. And this is where, where I think I'm right. And then the judge will have to render a decision on that. As they grant summary judgment, the case is effectively over, unless somebody appeals it up to the appellate division. If they deny summary judgment, now you're going to trial. Because of the backlog, the trials are not happening. It's it's not if you filed today, May of you know, 2023. You're not going to trial on a generic law division case in the fall of 23. You're probably looking at like 2025, realistically, at this point. Uh, we have cases that were filed back in 2018, 2019 that are still not at trial ready right now because of extended delays in discovery. Uh, one case where we, we, did, we did, I think, like 20 depositions over COVID all remotely. But everything kind of gets dragged out, so it takes a long time. Um, so it's really not until summary judgment that a judge will actually get all the papers and look at it. And it's not until trial that either the judge, if it's a bench trial or the jury will actually look at everything. So that's like a misconception, like all that discovery stuff that we were talking about, that's not being submitted to the court. That's just in my office. It's in my adversary's attorney's office. And we have that documentation until we present everything to the court. We're just one of a hundred thousand cases on their docket that they're, that they're working through. Um, the, the judges tend to, the court tends to touch the cases if there's a dispute, uh, like over discovery. I ask you to produce documents. You say, I'm not producing them. Uh, then I'll file a motion. A motion is essentially a fancy word for saying, court, please make this person do something or take some sort of action. Um, other than that, the judges, they're not involved in the nitty gritty day-to-day -day basis. There's just too many cases for them to be yeah. that, that granularly involved in everything. So... <clears throat> 
common takeaways, you're in this situation. If you're going to maybe not provide advice because we're not providing advice to correct, them, correct. Uh, what are some common themes that people should know if they've embarked in this process that you would tell them? Yeah, I mean the, the basic takeaway is that uh, it's not a fun process, but you can't bury your head in the sand and hope it goes away. You have to take action. Um, reach out, engage legal counsel that can help you um, from the jump. Because like right from the jump, there's things that might be beneficial to your case. Uh, be open with your attorney, share all the information that you have. Um, you don't have to play coy with your attorney, just share whatever you have and let them decide whether it's relevant, or irrelevant, helpful or not, or harmful. Um, to the extent that you can, I know like we were talking earlier about best practices, try and proactively particularly if you sense that there might be a litigation issue coming up, like you get into a fight with a vendor and you're like, I got my file lawsuit. You're now under the obligation to start retaining documents. So you want best practices again, try and keep your documents organized, have files for everything. If you anticipate litigation, you're actually under like a, uh, a, a mandatory requirement that you retain those documents. There's a whole issue of spoliation. You can't just take relevant documents and toss them out the window. Uh, the court will basically take an inference against you and say, well, that must contain stuff that didn't help you because you threw it away. And the other side doesn't have the opportunity to look at it. So to basically react with, with swiftness. You don't have to panic and go crazy that night, but like react quickly, try and gauge counsel rapidly, um, try and keep your records straight. Um, be patient. It's going to take a little bit longer than you want. Um, and a lot of it is hurry up and then wait and hurry up and wait. Um, Patience and proactivity, it sounds like. Yeah. You're toe the line of both, being yeah. patient, but also moving the process along Correct. quickly. And then and then simultaneously, it's also let the lawyer do his or her job. You're, you're engaging them, you're paying them, and let them do their work, and you supply them. You stay on top of them, ask for updates, check in with them. But uh, to, the extent, to the extent that you can compartmentalize and kind of just keep doing your own business, run your florist shop, Mother's Day is coming up. Graduation's coming up. My daughter's going to prom tonight. There's corsages to sell. Focus on that and uh, try and keep it compartmentalized as much as you can to try and uh, just let your business do, you do your thing and then deal with this legal part, which is not fun, but it's kind of like, you know, doing your taxes. It's it's a governmental intrusion in your life uh, that you can't avoid. You're going to have to deal with it. Well, thank you, Mike. Um, very informative. Um, hopefully our listeners and those watching don't have to deal with this. Um, but if they if they do and you need to talk to Mike, uh, you can reach him at 973-232-0614 or M short, S-H-O-R-T-T at saber.com. Saber is S-A-I-B-E-R.com. Uh, thank you, Mike. Yeah. Um, to uh, our listeners, thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. We'll be back soon for another edition of the Garden State Law Podcast. Cool. Nice job, Ethan. Thank you.